Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Reckless. Made for TV movies were event television. They would show up, be broadcast, and then you were never sure when they were going to show up again. So when I would see one that interested me, especially one that was aimed toward my demographic, one that, say, wasn't one that I was going to watch with my grandmother, I would get very excited about it and plan around it. And so when Midnight Hour was announced and I saw it in either TV Guide or the newspaper, I knew I was going to watch it. I knew I needed to reserve the television. These shows would come on, and if you didn't own a VCR, that was it. You had no guarantee they were ever going to be shown again. What you could hope for was that it was popular enough or they had spent enough money on it that they would rerun it. And in the case of seasonal entertainment, what you had to hope for was that they would run it like, say, the next Halloween, which is what they would do with the Midnight Hour. I watched the Midnight Hour the year it came out, and then I believe either the following year or the year after that, when it was being broadcast. Didn't tape it either time. And that was sad because I really wanted to see it. It was just the type of entertainment I wanted to own and watch around Halloween. Luckily, I started working in a video store. By that time, I really wasn't thinking much about the Midnight Hour, but then someone came in and rented it. And I remember looking at the box, just sort of staring for a moment, and all of these memories from just a few years ago came flooding back. And I thought, when this gets returned to me, I need to watch it. I did, and I would rent it multiple times, usually around Halloween. While it was great to own movies like, say, E.T. or Raiders of the Lost Ark, these big movies that you'd want to rewatch again and again and again, for me, maybe the greatest joy of home video and probably of the streaming era are movies like The Midnight Hour. Movies that might have otherwise been forgotten if there wasn't an additional way to monetize them. Because, yeah, maybe ABC would show The Midnight Hour again at some point in the 90s, but it was very much entertainment of its time, so the chances of that happening were low. So then you had to hope that it might show up on, say, a basic cable network, which it would, but again, who's looking for that? And so you go to the video store, and you're often looking for the new thing, but every once in a while something from your youth would crop up, and you'd bring it home, and you'd get to relive that experience again. I often worry that in the streaming era, with constant new content pouring out onto televisions, that some of this will get lost. I don't know if that is a fear that's warranted. Nostalgia is a powerful force, and it will have people looking backwards. And you gotta hope that with all of these streaming services and everything being digitized, there's at least a good chance that some of the entertainment that's being created that people in the future will look back on is being preserved. And my hope is that movies like The Midnight Hour are digitized, put on streaming services, and are rediscovered. Because you might not get all the context of what it was like watching it at the time, but around the holidays, a silly horror comedy has its place. And that is why on today's show, I am going to talk to you about The Midnight Hour. We'll talk about the people in front of and behind the camera. We'll talk about the story, the music, its release, its reception, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
the Midnight Hour, or In the Midnight Hour, as it sometimes was called in advertising, is a 1985 made-for-television horror comedy. It was directed by Jack Bender, and it starred Shari Belafonte, LeVar Burton, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, and Peter DeLuise. Now let me give you a overview of the movie by reading the box. It's a lovely black Vidmark entertainment box. It has a decent cover, not great. Normal thing on the back with two images, a great, great bleeding midnight hour logo. And let's go here. They thought vampires were a joke. One eerie Halloween night, a group of spirited teenagers recreate an ancient curse that almost destroyed their sleepy New England town many years before. The teens, direct descendants of those who lived through that night of horror, decide to reenact the ghoulish night for their own Halloween. In the process, they unleash the dreaded curse. A group of uninvited guests, ghouls, ghosts, vampires, and angry zombies leave the graveyard to join in the Halloween celebration. The result is a menacing blend of horror and humor. As the town is turned topsy-turvy by a battalion of spirit spooks, all hell breaks loose, literally. The teens must reverse the curse by the midnight hour to prevent the triumph of evil. The midnight hour moves as fast as a ghost in a strong wind, and the result is constant entertainment. A bewitching tale of the witching hour played by an attractive cast, including Sherry Belafonte Harper, LeVar Burton, and Kevin McCarthy. Color, 97 minutes. That really does a good job of describing the plot of the movie, and I'll get a little bit more into the plot a little bit later, but that should give you an overview of what this is about. If you were in the video store and you read that, would this be something you'd want to rent back in the, say, late 80s, even early 90s? The film was written by Bill Blake. He's written over a dozen scripts that have been produced. His credits include The Midnight Hour, Smoky Mountain Christmas, Children of Stepford, The Gladiator, not to be confused with the movie Gladiator, From the Dead of Night. He would also create the syndicated television show Shades of L.A. and worked on the Showtime series Poltergeist The Legacy. He's multi-talented. He's also written jokes for comedians like David Letterman. He's written musical pieces that have been produced and is also a member of the California State Bar Association. So if you want something funny and you need representation for a lawsuit, check out Bill Blake. The film has a very good director, Jack Bender. Bender was born in 1949. He's a film and television actor, producer, and director. He's worked on things like Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, and Lost. He got a start as an actor way back in the 70s, working on things like The Bob Newhart Show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and All in the Family. But he really made an impact when he transitioned into directing. Probably his breakthrough would be Child's Play 3. Then he would become the lead director and executive producer on the TV show Lost, directing 38 episodes of the show, including the finale. Would work on other very popular shows like Carnival, The Sopranos, Alias. More recent than that, he worked on Game of Thrones, where he directed two pretty big episodes of that. And then the, I would say, underrated TV adaptation of Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes. He's been Emmy-nominated, but sadly has never won. Are you a fan of the Retro's podcast? Do you like more retro stuff? Why not check out the Retro's Patreon? Go to patreon.com slash retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, and more. Feel good about yourself and make a difference in the world. Support the Retroist. The Midnight Hour would premiere in November, early November of 1985, but they made an announcement of it in papers in August of that year. So that's probably where I might have heard about it, maybe a little later than that. 
It's mentioned with a breakdown of things that are upcoming and really mentions Charles Hughes. And I'll read just what's here in the paper. Charles Hughes, the man who gave Michael Jackson's thriller video its special chiller look, is handling art direction for ABC's The Midnight Hour. The two-hour TV comedy thriller stars Sherry Belafonte Harper, Harry's daughter, of course, LeVar Burton of Roots fame, Dick Van Patten, and Kevin McCarthy, with Janelle Allen as a 300-year-old resurrected New England witch. The witch, Lucinda Cavender, crashes a Halloween costume party with her retinue of ghouls, goblins, vampires, and werewolves. Probably you can't tell the guests from the ghouls with a scorecard. That's not exactly accurate to the plot, but it gets the point across and really does stress the connection that this film has to Thriller, and it does. A lot of the same people who worked on Thriller would work on this film, and you can't help but hear the main number in the film, because there is, of course, a musical number without thinking of Thriller in some way, although Thriller is a lot more polished, of course. So a little bit more about the plot. It's Halloween in Pitchford Cove, Massachusetts, and there are five high school friends. There's Melissa, played by Elefante, Vinny, played by LeVar Burton, Phil, played by Lee Montgomery, Mary, played by Dee Dee Pfeiffer, and Mitch, played by Peter DeLuise. There's going to be a big party at a spooky house, and they decide that in order to look really cool, they're going to break into the town museum where they have all these historical artifacts, and they're going to take the outfits off the mannequins. These are historical outfits, and that's going to be their costumes. These people whose outfits they take are actually related to Phil and Melissa. And it's kind of weird. Melissa's great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, Lucinda, who's played by Jonelle Allen, was a witch who was put to death 300 years earlier by the witch hunter who was Phil's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. What's kind of weird about this, and they sort of address it in it, but it's still really weird, is that she was a witch who curses the town, but she was also a slave. And she was Phil's great-great-grandfather's slave. And they kind of just gloss over that little fact in it. There might have been some motivation for her wanting to curse the town, is what I'm saying, and they don't really explore that at all. Instead, she's just kind of this witch, vampire, monster who does this curse and is brought back to life. And she's brought back to life when they go to the graveyard and recite this spell that brings all the undead back to life. Now, not all of the undead are bad. Some of them are just to have fun. They show up at the party, have a couple of drinks, party and dance. There's also Sandy, who died at some point in the 50s when she was 17, and she becomes the love interest of Mitch. At the party, people start getting bit and turned into, say, vampires or werewolves, depending on how they're killed. Some become zombies. The town itself starts to go crazy. There's a police officer, played by Kurtwood Smith, who plays a guy called Captain Warren Jensen. Meanwhile, the substitute teacher at school, who shows up at the party as the chaperone, but I'm not so sure she was supposed to be the chaperone. Is she just showing up at a high school party and demanding wine? And she's played by Cindy Morgan, whose character's name is Vicky Jensen. So you have two Jensen but no mention that they are related to one another, which is kind of odd. So what has to happen is Phil and Sandy need to race against time and reseal that spell that was cast. And if they do, everything will return to normal. Do they do it in the end? You'll have to watch and find out. Eternity is about to play a nasty little trick. Who's there? On the carefree kids of Pitchboard Cove. You know what you're going to wear to the party yet tonight? My bidding on this night of night. Halloween, my favorite time of year. I'm not afraid of death. I'm going for it. The party could go on forever 
Now a little bit about this cast. It's actually a pretty big cast, so I'll have to move fast through this. Maybe some people I'll skip over. There's just so many good people in it. Shari Belafonte played Melissa Cavender. She was 31 years old at the time. Everyone in this film wasn't a teenager, but 31, that's a bit older. Shari Lynn Belafonte was born in 1954. She's a model, actress, and singer, and the daughter of the late singer and actor Harry Belafonte. She started working as a model before moving over into film and television. Television, and it's probably best known for her role as Julie Gillette in the ABC drama Hotel, which ran from 83 to 85. Lee Montgomery played Phil Grenville. Elliot Harcourt Montgomery. Harcourt is such a great middle name. Went by Lee Montgomery. He's a Canadian actor, probably best known for his work in the 1972 film Ben, where he plays the little boy in it. He was also in the Karen Black film Burnt Offerings, where he plays her son Davy, and in the Sarah Jessica Parker film Girls Just Want to Have Fun, a fun little crossover. He was in a great episode of Columbo, Mind Over Mayhem is the episode name where he played a character named Steve Spellberg, a nerdy young kid who is named after Steven Spielberg. So a random sort of fun connection. LeVar Burton played Vinnie Davis. LeVardis Robert Martin Burton Jr. was born in 1957. Probably a household name to a lot of people, especially people who like Star Trek, because he played Geordie LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation. But before that, he was pretty famous for playing Kunta Kente in the ABC miniseries Roots, and as the host of the educational show Reading Rainbow, which he did from 1983 to 2006, and would receive 12 Emmy Awards for, and a Peabody Award. Peter DeLuise played Mitch Crandall. Peter John DeLuise was born in 1966, a television director, actor, producer, screenwriter. You probably know him from his role as Officer Doug Penhall on the TV series 21 Jump Street, which I've covered in an episode. But he also worked on the Stargate franchise and, of course, is the son of the actor Dom DeLuise and his mother is Carol Arthur. Dee Dee Pfeiffer played Mary Masterson. Dee Dee worked in films like Vamp and The Horror Show, but played Sybil's daughter on the CBS sitcom Sybil from 1995 to 1998, and played Sherry DiCarlo Winston in another sitcom, For Your Love, from 1998 to 2002. Jonah Lee played Sandy Matthews, born Joanna Lee Pangburn. She would work mostly through the 80s after landing a role as an extra in the film Zapped. Worked on TV shows like Murder, She Wrote, and had a great lead in the Judd Nelson film Making the Grade in 1984. Jonelle Allen played Lucinda Cavender, really talented Broadway actor, got her first Tony nomination in 1972, would work on films like Cotton Comes to Harlem and The Hotel New Hampshire, but on the small screen she would work on Barney Miller, The Love Boat, All in the Family, Trapper John M.D., the list just goes on and on. Cindy Morgan played Vicki Jensen, the substitute teacher, who's kind of not that important to the film, just sort of shows up. Cindy Morgan, best known for two roles, Laura Yori in Tron, and Lacey Underall in Caddyshack. She would do lots of television work and film. Something I really enjoyed her in was Bring Him Back Alive, a very short-run show. Now, the person who shares her last name in this television movie was Captain Warren Jensen, played by Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Larson Smith, born in 1943. He's a TV and film actor, although he's worked forever. Had a big breakthrough in 87 as Clarence Boddicker in RoboCop. Really good villain there, but had a long run as Red on that 70s show from 1998 to 2006 and has continued to work. 
Dick Van Patten played Martin Grenville, the dentist in town. Just a great actor. Worked for decades in things. Best known for Eight is Enough. Just nice to have him in this, even though it's a small role. Playing his wife was Sheila Larkin as Janet Grenville. She played Dana Scully's mother on The X-Files. Kevin McCarthy played Judge Crandall. Great character actor, longtime actor, been in a lot of different things. Finally, Wolfman Jack is in this film as the radio DJ. You hear him throughout the movie. Robert Weston Smith better known as Wolfman Jack, was born in 1938, passed away in 1995. He was a disc jockey for three decades, and his voice is very well known if you've seen the film American Graffiti, but he's in lots of different things, often as a DJ. Had a very peculiar look and a great name. What a great choice of a name, Wolfman Jack. The film has a really nice score, and no surprise, it's done by a talented person. It was done by Brad Fidel. Bradley Ira Fidel, born in 1951, worked as a composer on TV and film. His collaborations with James Cameron on Terminator, Terminator 2, and True Lies are legendary. On those ones, he used mostly synthesizers. He does a great job with them, but he will score films with any number of instruments, including full orchestras. Other science fiction horror things he's worked on include Fright Night, Fright Night 2, Johnny Mnemonic, and The Serpent and the Rainbow, amongst other things. In the late 90s, he retired from doing film music and mostly works on original musicals now, but his music stands the test of time. Now, this soundtrack, besides having music by Fidel in the score, has a lot of great choices of popular music in it. It has some wonderful, what I would call Halloween or horror-themed rock music. And I'll just go through the list of the music here. Some of it not so horror, but more throwback. You have In the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett, Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival, Baby I'm Yours by Barbara Lewis, Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, Mama Told Me Not to Come by Three Dog Night, Devil or Angel by Bobby V, How Soon Is Now by The Smiths, Sea of Love by Del Shannon, Clap for the Wolf Man by The Guess Who, and Sea of Love by Phil Phillips. Now, there's one more song, which is an original song called Get Dead, which is performed by Sherry Belafonte in the film. The number and choreography in it is inspired largely by the success of Michael Jackson's Thriller. You can see a lot of that in this film. The art direction, the style, a lot of it's from Thriller. This song, which was sung by Belafonte, was written by Richard Gibbs and Philip Griffin. Gibbs was born in 1955. He's a film and music composer, worked on Dr. Doolittle, Queen of the Damned, Big Mama's House, Battlestar Galactica, and the first season of The Simpsons. And there is a Simpsons connection with another Simpsons composer, Danny Elfman, because Gibbs was the keyboard player for the band that Danny Elfman was in, Oingo Boingo, from 1980 to 1984. In addition, he played keyboard on over 150 other albums for artists like Tom Waits, Robert Palmer, Aretha Franklin, Living in a Box, More, and many, many more. Another great TV and film music veteran, Emmy-nominated Philip Griffin, also helped work on the lyrics. He would work on films like Die Hard and Die Hard 2, both Lethal Weapons, Boomtown, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Amityville The Awakening, The Simpsons, and did all of the orchestration for 93 episodes of Darkwing Duck. Let's get dangerous. The Get Dead sequence could be a music video unto itself, and you really should watch it if you can. It's on YouTube. Just search Get Dead and The Midnight Hour. 
There's some great horror imagery, some amazing people in seemingly random costumes. Some of them just crack me up, some of the choices they made. LeVar Burton turning into a vampire, starting to get into the music. That's great. The choreography. It's not as sharp as, say, Thriller, but still a lot of fun. This Halloween, have a devil of a good time. The Midnight Hour, Saturday. The Midnight Hour premiered on ABC on Friday, November 1st, 1985 at 9 p.m. and would run until 11 p.m. And it would get other airings over the years. Starting in 1990, Lifetime would show it, showing it on numerous occasions. That's where I would kind of catch it in the 90s at least. But it wasn't always during Halloween that they would show it. They one time showed it in the summer. They showed it at Christmas. It's as if they licensed it and then just wanted to start playing it. I was glad to get to see it, wished I had recorded it then. As I said, the film was released on November 1st, when it's a Halloween film. I think they wanted to include it as a Friday night movie, hence they waited to November 1st instead of making it a Thursday night movie. I think it's a missed opportunity. I would have much preferred this to be on Halloween, because I don't know if you're like me, but once a holiday is over, I move on. I don't like to linger in the holiday anymore. I get a little sad that it's over, and I just want to move on to whatever is the next holiday. So it was a challenge getting into the Halloween spirit the day after Halloween, but the film is good enough that I did. I was looking online for what people thought of this film when it came out. And overall, the stuff you find online is not very positive. You'll hear people saying the plot is simple, that the makeup is good, basically citing thriller. Leonard Malton wrote in 1987 that it was below average, a bland concoction of teen comedies, music videos, horror spoofs, and monster mashes. That he sees as a negative, I see as a really big positive. So you find these reviews on the web, but then you go back and start looking through newspapers. And I started looking through New Jersey newspapers, where I'm from, and also spilled into some other areas because I was interested in what they were saying in places like California about this. And in the reviews I read, they were all pretty positive. They see it as what it is, which is a light made-for-TV movie with horror elements. Because there are some, I wouldn't say scary things in the film, although they are. People get attacked by monsters and are killed, or at least turned into other monsters and they don't hold back they might not show blood but they do show the attack mostly what they talk about is how solid the cast is but none of the criticism i'm reading online so what else was on tv that night in my area so you know the midnight hour is going to come on at 9 until 11. And that's on ABC, which in my area was Channel 7. On CBS at 8 o'clock, you had the 1985 Twilight Zone. And that one is a message from Charity. And that's a good episode, the message from Charity, which is about a boy and a girl who are in different times. One's in Puritan, New England. One's in modern Massachusetts. And they have a telepathic link. It's a pretty good episode that night. So I probably would have been watching that. But I was very conflicted at this point because I really liked the Twilight Zone. But on NBC that night was Knight Rider, which was going to be followed by Misfits of Science at 9 and Miami Vice at 10. Now, I know there must have been conflict because back on CBS, 8 o'clock, The Twilight Zone, and 9 was Dallas and 10 was Falcon Crest. So I'm going to guess my grandmother wasn't around at that point. She might have been visiting my uncle because she usually could trump everyone to get to watch her Dallas and Falcon Crest. That's why I watched a lot of Dallas and Falcon Crest. The lead-ins to The Midnight hour were Webster and Mr. Belvedere. I can't get over sometimes when I look through these old guides just how much good television for me there was back then. Things that I loved watching 
And I wish that I had had a VCR or something that could record all of these things. So that Misfits of Science that night had Dorothy Hamill in it. That Webster had Patrick Ewing on it from the New York Knicks. That Mr. Belvedere was sort of a special episode about drinking. So really good night of television. Earlier that day on HBO, they were showing The Private Eyes, great film, which I've done an episode on. At 8 until 10 was City Heat, and then at 10 o'clock, Police Academy was on. I would say maybe the most other interesting thing in this guide would probably be the USA Network was showing wrestling and boxing that night. So if everything had been a repeat, I probably would have turned on wrestling. I liked having that, and that was usually a rerun, but it was fun to always have on wrestling. And the lead into wrestling was Dragnet, which I had a hard time resisting. Pretty solid night of television, but I know what I was doing, the midnight hour. It had everything I would want. The Midnight Hour would eventually get to VHS in May of 1989. That's when it was released by Vidmark. And then Anchor Bay Entertainment would re-release it on VHS in July of 1999. And we're right at the point where DVDs are going to start becoming a thing. And so the following year, in September, they would release it on DVD. Both releases of those films are out of print and quite expensive for the most part, although you can occasionally find some deals. Lucky for you, it does get uploaded to both the internet archive and YouTube. If you search the Midnight Hour, you can often find not just the VHS rip, occasionally the DVD rip, but also people's home recordings of the film, which is a joy to watch. Made-for-TV movies, especially ones that are set at Halloween, used to be a great part of our collective viewing experience. This film was sometimes rambling, sometimes confusing, but even though it was disjointed, it was memorable for those of us who watched it. It let some things hang, some plot points. But for the time when the MTV influence was starting to feel mature, that no longer felt out of the ordinary. You could do vignettes and little segments and all these different stories that didn't always have to relate. And as long as it was done visually interesting and had good music, you were often much more willing to accept that. So if you want something light and retro this Halloween, pick up the Midnight Hour or check out one of the many copies you can find online. You won't be disappointed. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at Retroist.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm at most of the major social platforms at Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. I want to thank Vic Sage for suggesting this episode. We were having a nice conversation about Halloween and what to talk about this year. And he brought up the midnight hour. And as soon as he did, I couldn't stop thinking about it again. And so thanks, Vic, for a great suggestion. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you could do so by giving it a five-star review wherever you downloaded it. It's really those five-star reviews that help people find the show, and I really appreciate it if you could do it. If you want to support the show further, The Retroist is on Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com retroist. Supporters of the show for just a couple of bucks a month get bonus episodes, bonus scans, and access to The Retroist Discord, the coolest retro community on the internet. Thanks everyone for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend.
what a great New Jersey ad this is. Bring your family to Family's Restaurant, the unique mall restaurant. Your hosts, the Copa family, offer you things like fried mozzarella, veal scallopini, shrimp scampi, linguine with red or white clam sauce, red snapper, located in the Pathmark Caldor Shopping Center on Route 46 in West Patterson. Sign me up. This has been a Retro's production. Goodbye.